You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Without any further ado, I want to officially announce the acquisition ClickFunnels has just acquired Magnetic Marketing, Dan Kennedy's company. Ah, I'm so excited for a couple reasons. Number one, for me as like probably Dan's biggest fan, I'm so honored to have a chance to be able to take my mentor's work and be able to take this and pass it on to the next generation of marketers. I was 20 years old when I ran into this stuff and it changed my life forever. I want to be able to bring that to the next generation of entrepreneurs and help change their life as well. That's number one. But number two and more importantly is for you guys. Like I want to be able to take these principles from Dan and give them to you so you have a more holistic understanding of business. Right now, all the things that people are teaching on the internet are these tactics, like like the, the things that are here that, are, that work today but are gone tomorrow, the fleeting things. The reason why I've been in business for over two decades now because my business was not built on these fly-by-night tactics. It's because I built it on a solid foundation, on strategies, the best marketers in the world. And so I'm going to be giving you guys these strategies from Dan to, be able to help grow your e-com business, for you to be able to take your coaching businesses and grow them and scale them at levels you never thought were possible. Dan changed my life, and he's going to change your life as well. And I'm excited to tell you that your training begins right now. Thank you. Thank you. This is Dad Kennedy, you guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, it's nice of them all to be so excited because Frank Kern is so still thoroughly pissed off <laughs> that we ruined his story um, and that I ruined his story by not dying. Um, <laughs> He clung to the idea that I was dead for quite some time. Uh, we were sending him pictures of me holding up newspapers with, with the current date on them to try and persuade him that I was still, uh, still around. Uh, so thank you. It's very nice of you. Oh, so cool. Well, I'm excited, uh, first off, to introduce you to our people. Like, um, I was talking about in the video a little bit, but you guys have no idea how much this man has impacted your lives indirectly, um, and a lot of you guys directly as well. Um, and it's my huge honor to have a chance to interview you. I'm not going to lie, I'm kind of nervous, but um, I'm also excited. And uh, we're going to talk about some of the questions I'm going to ask him about funnels and uh, some of the fatal flaws that a lot of us as internet marketers have when we're focusing on our funnels. But before we got into the funnel stuff, um, I had a personal question that I wanted to ask just because... I know like where I got my start and Frank Kern and Ryan Dice and how so many people all come in and basically say I got my start from Dan Kennedy, but I'm curious how you got started in this. Like this, I, I, made, no, I don't even know that story. I made it all up. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it all. Um, I, uh, I had a brief sojourn in normal traditional advertising and quickly uh, determined that it was... 90% bullshit, right? <laughs> that, that, the, that the agency agenda and the client agenda were not very well synced. Um, uh, I had an agency owner, very famous ad agency owner, say to me, kid, what you want is a dog food company as a client owned by a rich old guy who's married to the third wife half his age, and she has five fluffy poodles. Because all you got to do is put an effing poodle in the ad, 
and you'll keep the client for two years because they have no earthly idea whether what we're doing works or not. And it was about that day that I said, you know, I don't really know if I want to be a part of this. You know, there's more honorable ways to make a living. You could be a lawyer or a politician <laughs> or, or a hooker. Or, you know. um, so I, I, I began to really pay attention to, to mail order. David Ogilvie, one of the great old ad guys who you folks might not know, but he does. Uh, you know, David's famous rant in his office uh, to his staff at one point was then later reproduced in print by David and headlined, only the direct response people really know what they're doing. And direct response came from mail order and direct marketing came from mail order. And so I studied, as I got serious about it, the master's of mail order. Um, got to know many of them. Uh, uh, Joe Kosman, um, uh, Jerry Buchanan, um, all the way to more contemporary folks like Gary Albert, who people might know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then I began to carve out a niche for myself of applying direct marketing to non-direct marketing businesses. Initially, by the way, in a niche, chiropractic practices. Okay. Um, at the time, there were 33,000 chiropractic practices in the country, and I had 14,600 of them go through my seminars. We had pretty good market penetration. Wow. And by the way, that's pre-internet. You had to actually you know, <laughs> send direct mail and stuff to get them in the room. Um, um, so I began to carve out this niche of mail order, we didn't use that term, uh, for non-mail order businesses. Because really the principles, right? So principles should govern strategies and strategies should govern tactics and tools. And to your point, the tools change. They've changed a lot. You know, I'm old. And so they've changed a lot, but they don't really change much of anything. Uh, the tactics have changed, but they don't really change much of anything. And almost no media really goes away. It just gets integrated with the additional media that comes along that we can use if we're intelligent about it. So, you know, Yellow Pages before really the websites were a thing, we were doing free recorded messages. And we were really the only people teaching free recorded messages for Yellow Page ads. Um, Joe Polish got it from me. Uh. Joe got pretty much everything. No, that's not true. <laughs> uh, not true, not true. You know, I don't, I don't need the phone call. Um, um, uh, but so we were doing free recorded messages. So the ad was an ad for the ad that now had no t length limit to it, because as long as I could hold your attention, I could keep talking to you. Well, now you put the website in instead of the recorded message, although, by the way, recorded messages still work. Um, 
uh, because the Yellow Pages ad is an ad for the ad. And in some niches, the Yellow Pages shock to most of you. Uh, if you don't know what it is, you can Google it. Um, <laughs> um, they actually still exist. They are alive. They are well. They drive an enormous amount of business in a number of niche categories. Radio was thought AM radio was going to go away. Uh, it didn't, but it is now integrated with online media to the pie of a client several years ago that our very successful radio ad, the response device was text me your email address and we'll send you my options trading secret with which I made six bazillion dollars in two days in the pits. <laughs> Um, and that was the only response device. So, so uh, the, the direct marketing principles. And then on the, more on sort of the success side of things, where, which you are personally fascinated with, I know, sort of the history of personal development and success philosophy. Um, uh, magnetism is also a real thing. Um, and discussions of it go back to the turn of the century. So I began to use the, the systems of direct marketing uh, to create a magnetism, a pull rather than a push, a, what Seth Godin later called permission, mm -hmm. um, uh, so that your your ideal prospects are chasing you uh, uh, rather than you chasing, chasing them, right? Um, at the time in the real estate business, it was called farming, setting up a prospect base, typically geographic, but it doesn't have to be, and then nurturing it and being there all the time and so forth. We taught that to chiropractors. We built very successful practices with it. Um, so that's sort of the history. Yeah. So. Um, back then, were you calling magnetic marketing back then, or was that something in a newer no. term you started using? Um, actually, the first magnetic marketing system product was called the Small Business Emergency Survival System uh, because it was birthed during uh, the Jimmy Carter presidency, which, again, you can Google it. <laughs> um, um, uh, and uh, the Jimmy Carter presidency, the Jimmy Carter recession, uh, was really crushing to small business much the same way, to the same extent that the recent virus lockdowns and stay-at-homes and other disruption has been to small business. Um, it, 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 that recession, you had double-digit interest rates as the base rate. I mean, mortgages, if you had good credit and 20% down, had carried 18% interest. Wow. Um, you had double-digit interest rates. You had double-digit unemployment. You had double-digit inflation. I mean, they're arguing now, is it 2%, 6%? So I laugh when I hear it. I'm going, I'm, you know, my businesses were begun when it was 16%. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you turned around the another price sticker was on the loaf of bread on top of yesterday's price sticker, which was on top of the price sticker from the day before. And 
So the market, they weren't thinking about marketing. They were thinking about survival. And one of the things any good copywriter knows is the Robert Collier principle, which is enter the conversation already that they're already having in their mind, right? What if it's if it's consumers? What are they talking about at the kitchen table in the dead of night? If it's business owners, what are they talking about with themselves as they drive home at the end of the day? And nobody was really talking about advertising or marketing. They were having a how do we survive this? conversation. Has that cleared? The product never changed. Uh, the cover came off and the magnetic marketing system cover went on. Uh, um, and, and the magnetic, so the magnetic concept was there. I just didn't use that, that language. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> One other side question I have, and then we can go into the the core questions. But uh, it's your show. I don't care. <laughs> All right, we go as long as we want. You know, I mean... <laughs> well, I remember. Um, so one of the first things when I came into your world, uh, one of the first things I learned initially was was media. I always thought I ran an internet. I told people I run an internet business, and you're like, no, you run a business, and you happen to use the internet as a channel. And that was one big thing. But the second thing was, um, I wanted to be a public speaker. I'd, I'd seen some people speak on stage and sell, and I was like, I'm going to do that. I remember going to... That's, you know, how, that's how I got there. Uh-huh. I saw Zig when I was 15. Oh, really? When you were 15? Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. And I, I stood at the back of the room and I counted the money. <laughs> I was like counting all the people in the back, like, seeing how much they made. But I remember for me, like, I, I had gotten invited once or twice to speak, and I spoke, and I bombed every single time because I thought that for me to be successful, I was going to come, and I was going to teach and blow their minds, and they were going to run the back and buy and after I bombed, that's when I came into your world. And one of the very first things I ended up buying at the first super conference I went to was your public speaking CD course, which was like this fat. And I remember going home, listening to all the CDs. And it was, and I started hearing all of the stories that you guys had about when you were speaking at the big, the big events and all those kind of things. And, and, um, and then learning how to actually speak to sell as opposed to just speak to, to entertain or to educate or things like that. But when did that part come into me? You started going and actually speaking at those big conferences, big events and selling your, your well, I did a lot of crappy small rooms first, Yeah, <laughs> you know, um, um, there's a episode of Louis CK's comedy show, uh, with my friend Joan Rivers in it. And Louis is in the stinking side lounge of the, of, uh, the Trump casino, as a matter of fact, and Joan's in the main room and L- Louis is just quit because they won't let him do Trump jokes. <laughs> and Jones says to him, are you insane? Nobody in our business quits. You don't quit. It's too hard to get. He says, yeah, but that's easy for you to say. You're in the big main room. I'm over here in the lounge with the six drunks and the two people in the corner breeding. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really giving up that much, right? And Jones says... I was there six months ago, and I'll probably be there again before it's over. <laughs> the way you get to the big room is you do the small room. The big events that, that you, I think, refer to that I did for nine years, uh, the only constants on them were Zig and I. There were other speakers, um, and we were mostly in basketball arenas for seven of the nine years. Uh, audiences of 15 to 
Our biggest audience was 35,600 people or something at the start of the day. Now, by the time I got them, there was not <laughs> 35,000 people there. Because uh, I followed the last famous person. Huh. Um, uh, but um, that tour started with its owner, a guy by the name of Peter Lowe, Zig, me, and a memory expert doing half days with, if we were lucky, a thousand people there. Mm. I mean, well, I remember we were in the Akron Civic Theater, and literally there were rats running around in the green room mm. backstage, you know. <laughs> and I said, gee, this isn't good. And, <laughs> and Zig said, you'll get over it. <laughs> okay. um, but I saw him speak at an Amway rally when I was 15. And I, I had already begun to understood that very often shovel sellers do better financially than shovel users. Mm-hmm. It dates all the way back to the gold rush, right? Um, and what he did that day different than what he did with a general audience was, first of all, you'd have to understand the multi-level culture, but it was brilliant. I mean, brilliant. Extremely manipulative. <laughs> the, well, I mean, look, the, the principle is this. People love to buy under certain circumstances, but they still rarely do it without being guided to the purchase. I've known two speakers in my entire life who would use your... the Most speakers, when they start, all make the same mistake. Mm-hmm. They all think they're going to come in and they're going to dazzle them with their content and then sort of at the last minute, oh, by the way, I got stuff. Mm-hmm. And they think everybody is going to go run for the stuff because they were so dazzling. Well, it actually almost works in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So I've only known two in my entire life who could get away with it. Uh, Everybody else, from word one, it has to be engineered to drive the sale. And if you have a favorite joke that does not move it, you can't tell that joke. Mm -hmm. You can do that like here, after you've organized a giant tribe and you get to speak to them at times when you don't want to sell anything, now you can indulge yourself and they will indulge you, right? But when you are speaking to sell in person or when you're building a webinar or you're, you're doing anything one to many, teleconference doesn't make a difference. Teleseminars still work, by the way. There's this thing called a phone. Um, uh, there's no visible porno on it. So, so sometimes the concentration level's higher. Um, 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 seriously. I have a client who split tests every three months. Webinar, teleseminar, same script. Same script, and he still is outperforming with his teleseminar than he is with the webinar. But so um, it, the whole thing has to be engineered 
right to create the sale. And speaking just to get a standing ovation, that's actually relatively easy. That's a matter of pandering, right? Um, I mean, you can do it if you just know a few things about the audience. Um, um, uh, Tommy Hopkins used to say uh, we would ride to the from the airport to the hotel in the arena, often in the same city, and he would always quiz the cab driver. He said, because I need to know about sports in this town this week, uh, and I don't feel like reading the sports page. Um, and I need to know the town's claim to fame, because if I use that in the first five minutes when I'm up there, I buy some quick rapport. Right? So you can do that kind of stuff and you can get a standing ovation. Getting credit cards is much tougher. Uh-huh. Much tougher. I built a speak to sell uh, seminar for Joan Rivers. And um, uh, Joan had never done it. Now she had done QVC, home shopping, and a star at that. But she had never come up here on a stage with 300 people in a hotel room and done a presentation and pitched stuff and driven them to the back of the room to buy. I'm not even sure she'd ever seen it. Yeah. Uh, but she certainly had never done it. Uh, uh, but Joan, kind of a tough customer, so she pretty much undid everything I wanted her to do. And, um, um, uh, and then she did it. And we come back from the first break and she said, how did we do? I said, well, first of all, there's no we in this program here. (laughs) I said, I did fine, but you stunk up the place. (laughs) I said, you got 380 people here on Long Island who waited for four hours to get in here to see you and you sold two units because you didn't do the pitch which was 16 minutes long. Now, to her credit, she said something to me I won't repeat. And uh, then she went up on stage and got everybody back. And she said, I have to apologize to all of you. I really screwed this up. I didn't really explain this system that you all need to own for yourselves and your families. So I'm going to explain it to you now, and then we're going to take another break. (laughs) And she pitched, Uh and she killed. And then the next night, because we were testing it in four cities, she killed from the beginning. But it's a common error, you know, you just think people are going to buy. And they will, but usually not without help. Yeah. I remember hearing you in the CDs say that, like, you knew in your script, like, exactly, like, this is where I can take a drink of my water. This is where I laugh. This is the joke. And I remember thinking, like, that, that'll never happen to me. And after I got my webinar that worked to, to launch ClickFunnels, I did it 100 times in a row, back to back to back. I literally was the same way. Like, I knew where my joke was when I was drinking the water, like, everything, and it was just flawless. And so The, the AV crew at the big events um, could set their watch <laughs> by when I was going to say a sentence in 75 minutes. Huh. Because I was never off. 
when I started speaking to sell in 1977, the founder of the National Speakers Association, a guy by the name of Cabot Robert, interesting guy, but we don't have time, but, but Cabot was a, what we then called a platform salesperson. Right? He only spoke to sell, didn't care if he got a fee or not. He was, you know. And uh, Cabot said to me, um, it's infinitely easier to get a new qualified audience than it is to get a new speech that works. <laughs> now, when I heard it, I thought, with the arrogance of youth, <laughs> and Cavett, 70-some-odd years old at the time, I thought that's the laziest thing I have ever heard in my life. Ten years later, I thought that's one of the smartest <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Because it's, abs you know, when you get a winner, regardless of the media, which if you're the media, fine. Uh, if you're the media on media, fine. Um, uh, I mean, I worked in the infomercial industry a lot for 15 years. When you get a show that works, you want to buy all the time you can. Uh, you, you don't want to be working on a new show. Uh, you, you want to ride, get that one out of the barn every day and get it to the track. And in as many different media as you possibly can. So like Beachbody, some of you probably pay attention to Beachbody. Carl Deichler goes way back to my main years at Guthy Ranker. And uh, uh, direct mail guy Craig Simpson does... Beachbody's direct mail, and you know Craig. Yep. Um, uh, you can take most of the successful Beachbody infomercials or even their two-minute spots, and you can turn them into a direct mail piece that works. And why wouldn't you? Right? I mean, because at some point, that message isn't going to work anymore, and you're going to have to replace it. But as long as it's working, you want to deploy it in every way that you can that at least breaks even if you have a back end, if you are in the business of acquiring customers. Yeah. That actually, interesting enough, leads to our first real question. So I'm having so much fun. I can do this forever. Um, so let's, lead, let's, let's shift a little bit to that then. So um, we wanted to talk about, when we were kind of planning this out, we talked about like... Um, in our world, you guys are all funnel hackers. We build sales funnels. That's where our focal point's at. Um, but there's a lot of things that, um, in fact, we titled this, this presentation, uh, Five Fatal Flaws of Funnels. And so um, there's some questions I'm asking that specifically for you guys to start looking at your funnels differently, looking at your business differently that I think um, are these core principles that have had such a big impact on me that I learned directly from you. And so the first one, um, this one was interesting for me because when I first started my business, I built a funnel. I started driving people to it. I started making sales and I was making money. But I remember one day, probably a year or two into the business, waking up and laying in bed and being like so miserable because I hated my customers. And I remember sitting there thinking, I wish that I had a boss so they could fire me because I don't want to go in and have to do my customer support and talk to my, I, I just had the wrong customers. I think a lot of times because it's so easy nowadays to build a funnel and start getting traffic, we build this amazing funnel but then we get the wrong prospects, the wrong people in. I'd love for you to talk about, about making sure we're getting the right people so we have businesses. Well, and by well. the way, it also happens a lot when people are only using cheap media mm -hmm. because they say to themselves, what difference does it make? 
right? Um, but at some point in time, if you're going to scale, um, you run out your cheap media, you actually now have to start buying media, and now it matters a lot, yeah. right? <laughs> so a key to, mag- to being magnetic, um, um, so all sorts of things help, right, in, in being magnetic with, with marketing. Um, but the, so people will often ask me for the pie chart, which is uh, success with a direct marketing campaign. What percentage of it is due to this? What percentage of it is due to that? What percentage of it? Is, and of course, there is no such pie chart because it <laughs> varies. But more than half of scalable, sustainable success in direct marketing. And I used to care about saying this when a million dollars or so a year of my income came from writing copy. Now I don't care. So um, completely unfettered truth. But um, (laughs) more than half has to do with the audience that you've selected the potential customer, client, patient, or donor that you've selected. And if you've selected really well, mediocre uh, marketing will often get extraordinary results. If you've selected poorly, exceptional marketing will very often get mediocre results. And over a long term, will turn out to be a economic failure because the customer value over time is not very long or it's not very high or uh, the dynamic that you've described happens <laughs> is the business's leadership winds up with a bunch of customers they don't like yeah. and then naturally they don't treat them very well and now their value goes down, right? So. The most important principle uh, about magnetic marketing is uh, what I've always described as message to market match. And the tighter that match is, you know, John Carlton's story about the the ad campaign for the one-legged left-handed golfer, Uh right? Well, if you can get that in front of a one-legged (laughs) left-handed golfer, See, that's a slam dunk. So actually, the smart thing is to find a, a hungry, underserved, specific, affordably reachable market, and then build a message to match it, and you create slam dunks for yourself. So relevance is important. Is this message really relevant to this person? Appropriate is the message really appropriate to these people? Is the message understandable, easily recognized? Oh, okay, I get it, right? Um, like this message, gee, I now understand I want to do all this complicated stuff and I can't do it with three by five cards and colored stickers and eight different computer programs that don't talk to each other and et cetera. I need quick funnels, right? 
Well, that's, uh, you kind of get that if you're doing any marketing at all. Now, then you get to make a decision about, well, is ClickFunnels the right one or the wrong one? But you get the concept, right? So the concept has to be understandable. Usually there has to be affinity. Whoever is delivering the message has to be, um, um, has to have some connection to the audience. We had a speaker on the big tour. His name was Ted Brower, a nutrition speaker. And Ted, and that's not an easy topic to do in a big open public rally and all that. Ted did the 10 foods never to eat. And then he sold a package and a coaching program from the stage. And the first time we did Birmingham, Alabama, uh, Ted nearly zeroed. And he was mystified because same speech, same energy level. I did the same dance before I went out there to get myself jazzed up. Everything's the same. And I zeroed. How could this be? I said, Ted, you're in Birmingham, Alabama. You just told them they can't drink Dr. Pepper. (laughs) They can't eat moon pies. And they can't eat catfish. I said, that's the whole diet. (laughs) What, What exactly do you expect these people to eat. If they can't buy it at the convenience store, they ain't eating it, Bubba. I mean, you gotta, you, you gotta modify that message a little bit to match the fact that we're in Birmingham, Alabama, or don't work Birmingham if your integrity will not let you do so. So, message to market match is what, is where we find magnetism. So, like, I've always understood there are audiences that are no good for me. Okay? And I'm no good for them either. Okay? We, Corporate. Okay. Um, we are not, you know, going to sink. Okay. And there's no point in me trying to make that happen because there's a lot of people with whom I'm like the perfect match. So why not find them? Right. So that's like the, the key to this is sort of source. Where are they coming from? And who are they? Not who are you? So most people start with, I got this stuff I want to sell. Mm-hmm. I'm, I've written a book, which I spent six years on, you know, um, about poetry or gender studies or, you know, whatever. And n- n- now I want to go, now I want to go in search of somebody who will buy it, which is problem riddled, right? And often that no matter what you do, you can't make that work. Now, this also speaks to precision. I'll probably come back to it, but like there's almost no business that'll work off of one funnel or shouldn't. There's almost no business that'll work off of one ad campaign. There's almost no uh, because there's subsets of every audience and every market, and the tighter the match, you know, the better. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you have orthodontists who run radio ads about Invisalign, and a radio ad drives them to the orthodontist website, but that's a generic website about everything the orthodontist does, 
the person who went there thinking Invisalign, Invisalign, Invisalign is instantly disappointed. Oh, crap, it's just another orthodontist. Mm -hmm. And off they go. The, that orthodontist, has got, if he wants to do dentures, he's got to have a complete marketing system for dentures, a complete marketing system for Invisalign, and never the twain shall meet, right? If he's marketing to, well, you probably read it, a bunch of people won't have. One of the 10 best marketing books ever written um, is called The Purpose Driven Church. You ever read this? No. Oh, well, you learn something every day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Make a note because you'll be excited. Huh. Particularly the chapter that is not titled this, but is very predatory. So Purpose Driven Church is written by Rick Warren, Pastor Rick Warren. His bestseller is Purpose Driven Life. So Purpose Driven Church is for pastors, and it's really a marketing book for pastors, but it never uses that term because they get cringy about it. <laughs> I've, I have a friend and a client who was with Rick Warren for a number of years. His name is Nelson Searcy, and he owns a company called Church Leader Insights, and he has a coaching program, 3,600 pastors in it right now. And I always talk to Nelson about the church business, and he constantly asks me, don't call it that. <laughs> I said, well, you got lead generation, you got, right, what, 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 what is it if it's not, you know, a business? <laughs> but the Purpose Driven Church, Rick Ward's book, there's a chapter in it about susceptibility, mm -hmm. right? which sometimes in direct marketing we call probability. Right? And so like at the grassroots level, he has a list of 10 susceptibility categories that you as a pastor may want to build a complete marketing system for and do target marketing for. So for example, you can go down in your town to the police station and you can get a list every Monday. You can get the arrest records and look at them and you can see who had a domestic violence or a juvenile delinquency related police call to their house. They are substantially more susceptible to a come to church message mm. than their neighbor who doesn't have any problems. Now, tested, you can't show up and say, we went down to the police station. <laughs> tested that. <laughs> we know you, you don't do that. You just show up at the right time with your best marketing message, right? So it's a really interesting marketing book. I, I commend That's it. That's cool. <laughs> um, very cool. Give a round of applause for that. <clears throat> that actually reminds me of uh, one of the stories, I think you wrote about it, I don't know, originally, the first time I read it was in the, um, the Ultimate Sales Letter, I think. You talked the story about um, the welcome guest versus the annoying pest. Uh, would you be willing to tell that story? Because I think it uh, kind of ties into that and the marketing messages that people are Yeah, out. so people show up as annoying pests precisely because they don't get message to market match going in, right? So um, this is actually true. Um, 
Uh, I was living in Phoenix. I was home. I stayed home. I never went to the office. And um, I didn't want to be there. They didn't want me to be there. You kind of know this gig, right? <laughs> um, um, so I w- worked at home. And um, uh, it was a weekday, middle of the day. Um, and we had big wood double doors. And there's this monstrous banging on the wood double doors, ringing the doorbell and then banging on the doors. And uh, this was a recession. So the Avon ladies and the Jehovah Witnesses were carpooling. And (laughs) I've told that joke for 35 years. I've only ever got one complaint, and it was not from the Jehovah Witness. It was from an Avon sales manager who I had just destroyed her sales force and self-esteem and they'll never work again. You know, just completely humorless. Today, you'd, of course, be banned from Facebook. Um, But, um, but, so, because I know no one invited is coming over, I know this is an annoying pest. And I'm busy, I think I was on the phone, so I ignore it, confident that if you ignore a pest, generally it will go away, right? It will tire of trying to get you to pay attention and move on to the next house. Um, so this goes on for a while, but I'm pretty stubborn, so I can, annoy, I can ignore a lot. And um, next thing I know, this person has climbed over the back wall of my property, which, by the way, has shards of glass on top of the, to discourage this idea. <laughs> and they are, they're, they've, in the backyard, they've compassed the pool and the hot tub and stuff, and they are now banging on the sliding glass door, which they can see me through. <laughs> so now you're kind of a, you know, if you don't, so okay. So the message is, all of the shrubbery in your front yard is on fire. <laughs> and the flames are licking at the, at the stuff. And of course, not everybody was walking around with a cell phone then. So his message was, you call the fire department, and I'll go back out there and work the hose. Now, at that second in time, he went from being a most annoying pest to a most welcome guest. (laughs) And the only thing that changed was right message, right time. (laughs) Right? That's it. (laughs) So, you know, in our world, there's been a, what, I don't know, a decade-long insanity of email delivery drops Open rates go down. So marketer who was sending one a day sends two. Then his open rates go down further, so he sends four. <laughs> then his open rates go down further, so he sends eight, until his open rate is zero, and he's sending one every five minutes. Right? <laughs> you, you can't really amp up being an annoying pest and get results. It's hard work. A super salesman could do it. You know, like, I have a friend who I always say, you could give him a crate to stand on and put him in a bus station 
and he will walk out of there having sold $5,000 coaching programs to every vagrant who's in the place. But he's a pretty rare fellow, right? Most people are not, you know, they don't have the combination of that skill. I mean, I say I can get a check out of a rock. I'm that capable. But I don't want to. I want people to want to give me checks, right? And that's about this dynamic change of always asking yourself, is everything I'm doing here uh, organized uh, to, so that I'm showing up as a welcome guest? That's why we use FedEx a lot instead of direct mail, because interest level automatically goes up because it's FedEx. FedEx. Package, yeah. Um, yeah. Very cool. Um, the next question I have for you, and it's funny because I quoted you in all of my books saying this, and then I think three times in the last two days I've quoted you. This is like my, the quote that had the, probably the biggest impact. We actually had a member who made um, what would Dan do bracelets. Oh, really? Yeah, which I was really uncomfortable with having these <laughs> handed out. I didn't stop them, but I was uncomfortable. <laughs> So. <laughs> That's awesome. <clears throat> the quote is, whoever can spend the most money to acquire customer wins. And especially in our world right now, I don't know how much you follow like the recent like, Facebook and Apple fights, like costs to acquire customers has gone up across the internet. And I think that a yeah, lot of people... it's headed have... towards like real acquisition costs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I lo- <laughs> but I love, because I think people in this room are good at making good funnels. A lot of times the economics don't, don't work at the end of the day. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so... So math is the gravity of the direct marketing business, right? And outright defying gravity is just not an intelligent thing to do. Um, my, it, 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 during my rich family stage, I had a very big bedroom on the second story of the house, and I had my own uh, balcony, which really was the carport roof over the back driveway, and I got a Superman Halloween costume, and I was young enough to think the secret was the cape. (laughs) And so I took a running start and flew ever so briefly. (laughs) Um, And and I tried it a second time in case I had screwed it up somehow, but... um, but it turns out gravity kind of, you know, is a real thing. And so marketing is about behavioral psych and math. That's what it's about. And most people love the behavioral psych part and they hate the math part. And they will often try and overcome bad math with some compensating idea, right? I've got a product that the whole world needs. I've got a product that these people need. I've got the best doodad ever invented. I've got the best copywriter that's ever walked the face of the earth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing overcomes bad economics. Nothing, ever. And if you're a copywriter and somebody tries to tempt you into this, which happened to me once every three or four years, you should resist the temptation if you don't want to screw up your scorecard, uh, because you are not going to win. Um, it's like the graveyard of marketing is bad economics. And if you can temporarily live with bad math because you're only using cheap media, 
it's only a matter of time before you'll be in trouble. So you want to kind of get that right from the beginning. Beyond that, so to your quotation, it has to do with cost per lead and it has to do with cost per sale. First of all, in any competitive environment, whoever figures out how to spend the most for their lead and their sale wins. They buy speed, they buy scale, they buy discouragement of competition, and they buy sustainability. Now, you've got to figure that out without it putting you in bankruptcy court. Um, if you're not like Uber, where you can go 12 years before you make a profit, um, you've got to figure out a little shorter runway than that. So this is why, and as acquisition cost goes up, which it does all the time. See, there's always been cheap media early, always. When I started working in the infomercial business, TV stations still didn't understand what we were doing. In a local market, like in Phoenix, you could buy all the half hours you wanted from midnight until eight in the morning for like 200 bucks a half hour. They actually turned the TV off like after Johnny Carson and the Tom Snyder show on NBC, they played the national anthem and there was nothing on the TV until eight o'clock the next morning. So when we walked in and said, well, by that dead time, the station guy says, what do you give us for it? Oh, how about 200 bucks? Station guy <laughs> says to himself, these people are crazy, right? Uh, will you agree to do it for six weeks? Sure. Great. Here. Here's the keys to the building. You come in, flip the switch, you know. Um, well, you could have some pretty crappy marketing and you could win with the first transaction, that's when you saw a lot of seminar moved to TV kind of infomercials. You saw the Dave Delgados of the world. We just took them out of the free preview room. We stuck them in a TV studio with a rented audience and a camera and a light, and we let him do his thing, right? Because if you saw one course, you were home free. Right? Well, five years later, that half hour is $20,000. Well, now you got to get good, right? <laughs> now you got to like figure out a business. You got to, you, you got to be able to mitigate that cost. You got to, you can't miss any opportunity for money, right? But if you do, if you do now, you win big. Because like everybody else, kind of surrenders. So in TV, for example, my client, Guthy Ranker, I worked on Proactive, the acne glop, from show number one until the last show. And, um, and wrote copy for everything but TV. Because at peak, we were using 22 different media, including Yellow Pages, really? which is an interesting side story in and of itself. 
Um, um, and um, there's no magic to that. Right? There's only three FDA-approved ingredients you can make an acne claim for. So every glop has one, two, or three of those as its chief active ingredients. And then the other stuff varies a little bit, but candidly, glop is pretty much glop. <laughs> some of it's a little better than others. Some of it's a little worse than others. Glop is glop. <laughs> Same thing, ladies, with skincare products. I know you don't like to hear it. It's just like house paint. There's... I'm serious. There's four levels of it, and that's all there is. There's the level made for Walmart and the CVS store, and there's the level made for the departments, and 90% of it's the same glop. Um, so there was no magic to the glop. There's no magic to the show. If you sat there with a pad, a pen, and a stopwatch, all the secrets of the show are visible. Just like when I saw Zig speak when I was 15. I said, if I just get a tape of this, I like, I got the blueprint, right? And then, who else is doing this? Tom Hopkins, great. Who else is doing this? Brian Tracy, great. So if I go get tapes from, of all three of them pitching, and I transcribe them, I got the blueprint. Well, same thing with infomercials. There's not that much variable capability. So if you, so you could duplicate the show, right? which you couldn't necessarily duplicate, which is why there never was a serious competitor in all the years that Proactive was built to a company that sold for a billion dollars uh, to Nestle, who is busily destroying it. <laughs> um, um, they couldn't wait. Um, um, well, it happens all the time, you know. Well, the entrepreneur got it this far, the moron. Now we'll bring in professional management and imagine what we can do to it. Yeah, Afghanistan. That's. <laughs> um, 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 <laughs> I mean, seriously, could your dog have screwed? My dog would not have screwed it up as bad, you know. <laughs> dog would have gone, civilians last? <laughs> so, um, so we never had a serious competitor. Why? Because they couldn't figure out the economics. How the hell do we spend an ever-increasing amount to acquire a customer? So for $39... We were spending 300, then we were spending 600, then you were spending 900. Well, people would duplicate the show, run it for a weekend, see the numbers, and commit suicide. Right? <laughs> you don't have to outcompete them. So the first truth about all this is there really is no bad number. Once you get a number and you know what it is, your challenge now is how do I bridge the gap? to a number I can afford, and then go out and acquire all the good customers I want if I can figure out that formula. We, I was on the air for nine years with a little show called Go By The Inch. 
it sold a business opportunity where you got these spools of gold stuff and you went out to the swap meet. And you, we were on the air uh, for nine consecutive years, nonstop, every day, every night. Built a fabulous business with a really cheap show. And uh, I, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight attempts, right, at copycatting it. But they didn't copycat the math. So, for example, this cost, we had to add a phone room. We didn't have a phone room to start with. We generated leads. We sent out packages. Orders came in, right? Beautiful. Now, the cost of acquisition goes up. Oh, crap. We can't afford to waste these leads, right? Now, he didn't even have a follow-up sequence. So I said, what? We can't afford to waste these leads anymore. We got to have a 12-step follow-up sequence. Okay. Now we got that. Now the cost of acquisition is still going up. Zelen, you can't, you're not going to be able to stay on the air unless we got telemarketers calling the non-responsive schmucks who won't respond to the 16 steps. Right? So now we got a phone room with all the ugliness that comes with it. Right? Every car in the parking lot with the clothes pole in the back seat with the clothes hanging on it. <laughs> People on the brakes out smoking. You know, everything that comes with having a phone room. Uh, then the costs are still going up. So now we're collaborating. We're lead swapping with other opportunity marketers. Hey, you're generating leads. We're generating leads. They're saying no to our thing. That doesn't mean they're done looking for opportunity. just means they don't like our thing. We'll swap you our leads after we've used them for a month. And you give us your leads after you've used them for a month, cuts each of our costs in half, right? By the time I was done, we were sharing our leads with nine other marketers in order to stay on the air. And consequently, we could spend more money than any other opportunity marketer ever figured out how to do, right? Because they kept working on the creative. Oh, we need a better show. Oh. You know, I did a lot of work for Weight Watchers at one point. And I was in their phone room for a day. At the time, they were handling one million inbound calls a year. All 80% fat women, 20% fat guys who wanted to lose weight. The conversations were all the same. Right? I got a wedding coming up, beach vacation. You know, I got a I got to drop some weight. Or post-divorce, three months after the divorce. <laughs> um, by the way, that's the susceptibility mark for cosmetic surgery, uh, cosmetic dentistry. It's a big marker, the three to six month number, um, um, uh, 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 which goes all the way back to Rick Warren. And by the way, you can get that information. Um, uh, you know, women buy five times, at five times the rate, skincare products uh, by, direct, by direct marketing if you arrive the month of their birthday during the year, as opposed to any other month. Same marketing. You don't have to change anything. You just have to be there in the birthday month because they look in the mirror more and they're, you know, obsessing more, which, you know, guys don't pretty much. We don't. Especially for Mary, it's like, really? <laughs> I'm looking to see if I got more bags under my eyes, but she is. <laughs> and 
And God bless her, by the way. But, um, um, and, and by the way, that doubles again in benchmark birthdays. Oh, like 40? 50, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so there's these, these, there's these weird little susceptibility factors, you know, to everything that you can, that you can manipulate, uh, if you know them. But the math is really important. So like the, kind of the rule of thumb for direct marketing is you need an eight to one markup. Uh, if you got less than that, you're starting out in trouble. You're not going to be able to use all the media that's available to you once you have a winner. You're going to be handicapped, right? And if you can't get eight to one, but you're close, then you got to start figuring out this ancillary and back-end stuff of mitigating these costs so that you are always the one with the spend power in the marketplace. Now, this is the exact opposite of what most marketers do. So most marketers, first of all, try and spend as little as humanly possible to get a customer. All those guarantees, they get crappy customers and they don't get enough of them. Then, if they've fooled around with, let's say, eight media, they take the two that are cheapest. They'll never use the three over here that are the most expensive. They never dollar cost average them together. You know, I mean, if you've got a website that works for like stop smoking, lose weight, every door direct mail will work for you. The economics aren't exactly the same, but close and close and Valpac will work for you. Um, you can Google it. It's a thing. <laughs> um, still exists. Um, so you can have the best funnel in the world presenting the best product, but if you got bad math and you don't do something about that math, uh, you may be okay in the early going, but you're going to get bit. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Next question I have for you. Um, I've gone through, I think, every course and book. Okay. You've been through every course and book you've written, and I think the one that had the... What a bet? Give me your credit card before you... (laughs) But one of my favorites still to this day that I've probably gone through a dozen times or more was the... It was an event you did called Personality and Copy, and it was talking about um, weaving these things in. And for me, like, when I started my business, I was very introverted and shy, and I didn't talk about myself or my audience or anything... Um, and as I went through that course, you talked about companies like Marvel and you talked about Disney and all these, these companies that, that brought their personality into their marketing and brought their, and built entire universes around what they were doing. I'd love for you to talk more about um, some of those principles. I think people here can really start uh, weaving. Well, so me too, by the way. Mm-hmm. So I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. I'm happiest in the basement writing. Um, I never wanted any part of this. Um, <laughs> uh, I stuttered uncontrollably all the way through my teens. Um, But it turns out that building an institutional business, um, a nameless, faceless, uh, devoid of personality business is much harder. Uh, It requires a lot more capital and it takes a lot more time because people like to do business with people that they know, like, admire, respect, trust, and feel affinity to. And you can't do that when it's XYZ company, right? And the proof is even big corporations, when they get in trouble, they trot out a human, Mm -hmm. right? Even if they weren't doing it 
before. So uh, the three that probably have had the most influence as models for me um, were Walt Disney, um, uh, which right now I have bones to pick, but up until recently. Um, Walt Disney and the Disney companies, um, uh, Stan Lee, who built Marvel, of course, and Hugh Hefner. And by the way, they're all of the same era, and they're all of the same... Um, they all watched each other. Uh, they all knew each other. Uh, and there's enormous similarities. You know, Walt had mice and ducks, and Hefner had rabbits. But, <laughs> but the... But the... The principles, by the way, are all the same, which, first of all, is personality. So, see, Playboy was built not just on what at the time was not shocking, but, you know, um, um, noticeable partial nudity and sex and so forth. Um, it was built on Hugh Hefner's personality. There's a great documentary. It's on Netflix. Um, you should all watch it. It's called American Playboy, and they do a pretty good job. Um, um, and, and Hef was a shy, introverted guy. Uh, Walt was a shy. Walt did TV to start with, not wanting to do it. He didn't want to be the face of that company. He did it because the only way he could get the money he needed from ABC to finish Disneyland was if he agreed to do the TV show. Uh, so Walt was a very reluctant personality. He hated it the whole time he did it because Walt was a big smoker and a drinker, but he couldn't let that be known, right? He had an ashtray hidden in his office and so forth. Um, so so one is personality. The other lesson of all three of those people, which I think is very important to the person who thinks of themselves as a digital or an online marketer, is that they each created a place to put their customers in a world of their own apart from the rest of the world. After all, we said if Walt hadn't got it first, he would have said, happiest place on earth. I mean, really? <laughs> you know, um, kind of pretty happy. Sleeping Beauty's Castle, Playboy Mansion. Uh, kind of depends on who you are. But um, 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 the... Uh, the Playboy Mansion Toast, let me see if I can do it. It was written by Bob Culp from I Spy. Um, uh, is, uh, is be of good cheer for uh, they are out there and we are in here. <laughs> now, look, there's a lot to that, right? This is division, right? They are out there. We are in here in this world you've created. And you got to get your... You, you can't, it was described this morning on CNBC. Now, I won't remember who did it, but he said, look, you, you can't afford to be renting your customers from Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest 
or anybody else uh, because you'll get at them less and less and less and less under more and more and more restrictions over time. You've got to move your customers to your own media platform. Now, I would, I would say world. I would use the word world. And so Stan Lee did that brilliantly. Um, um, he's the first guy ever. There was a, a rule in comic books that you never let the reader, you never acknowledged to the reader that any of this wasn't real. Mm-hmm. Right? And Stan broke that rule to smithereens and let everybody in on the gag. And the fans not only knew the characters, they knew the artists. They knew the writers. There was a column in almost every Marvel comic book uh, called uh, Stan's Bullpen, where they talked about uh, what Jack Kirby was doing on his vacation and uh, 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 what the next storyline was going to be. And it was all kind of written tongue-in-cheek, teen kind of lingo. Uh, but we were in the Marvel world. Uh, kids badgered their parents to take them to the Marvel offices in New York so they could see the bullpen where all the writers worked. Um, up until recently, if you visited Hollywood Studios here in Orlando at Disney, you saw the Walt kind of mini museum with Walt's office with his drawing board in it and so forth. They've kept that alive all these years. So so what all three of those guys did just brilliantly is they took their customers, they organized them as a group, and they put them in a world of their own with media they owned and controlled. Now, that didn't stop them from using every other media available to them but they were very cognizant of the fact that, that um, so there's a, there's a money principle, um, wealth, uh, security, and freedom, mostly the three things we all want. None of them come from what we do, because what we do is always inherently fragile. It can be obsolete by technology, it could be shut down by the China virus and lockdowns and all that stuff. And, uh, 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 you know, well, or they could tear the road up in front of your office. Or, um, well, I know that's itchy, but um, there'll be climate change in hell before I say pandemic. So, um, 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 <laughs> Good news is that only cost you like six. <laughs> um, uh, and you'll get the email. I don't use it. So, this is true. Uh, um, and there's a reason. Um, uh, 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 so you don't get those three things from what you do. No matter how highly developed your skill is, no matter how much you work, no matter how hard you work, no matter, you don't get it from what you do. Uh, what you do produces income. Uh, but income is what I call Houdini money. Income has the incredible ability to disappear. Right? Um, um, you can spot that here 
by all those cars parked out front. <laughs> um, you can't buy an asset that depreciates faster. And look, I own racehorses. They eat while I sleep, but they ain't as dumb as those things. Um, I mean, to each their own, by the way, but it's fine. Uh, I'm just saying, lifestyle escalates with income. So, you know, guy makes 50000 his first year. He thinks he's done something. I used to think, Jesus, you made a million dollars a year. I mean, you were like, you know, King Tut, right? <laughs> and now it's like, that ain't going to cut it, you know? Um, um, but guy makes 50. At the end of the year, he and his wife sit down and they go, well, where'd all the money go? Well, we only made 50. Decade later, they made 500. They're having the same conversation. Where'd all the money go? Because lifestyle escalates with income, right? And if you're married, you got two people escalating the lifestyle, right? So you bought your Lamborghini. Wife says, well, I'll fix him. $200,000 kitchen remodel. <laughs> Boom. Right? Uh, we go to, I go to, I own racehorses. You go to a racehorse auction. Every guy tells the same lie when he leaves the house. He says, she says, you're not going to buy another horse, are you? No. I'm just going to keep Russell company. <laughs> Russell told Colette, I'm just going to keep Kennedy company. Right? And here we're coming home with a horse, like a $50,000 horse. That's why there's a big pop-up jewelry store at all the horse auctions. Because <laughs> if, if you wave the tennis bracelet hard enough over here, she might not notice the horse. That's not rational, by the way. But it's the best idea guys have. <laughs> you know, we don't really have good ideas. Um, um, uh, so, what the hell was I talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> Hefterly, oh, yeah. a place of your own, right? That you put your, you put your customers in. And they are, for them, it is the happiest place on earth. Or it is the most exciting place on earth. Hopefully it's the most profitable. But anyway, you don't get free, rich, or secure by what you do. You get it by what you own. That's where I was. So w wealth comes from what you own, and, and, um, and freedom comes from what you own, and security comes from what you own. And the, the most controllable asset, the hardest asset to lose is you, your personality, your mindset, your knowledge, your skill set, right? Then the second hardest one to lose, if you've managed it properly, is the equity in your customers, right? Um, uh, so when I, my third wife is my second wife. Um, you can all think about that. Um, um, the good news is the third time I got it right, I married Rich. Um, um, 
<laughs> so uh, when we were divorced, pretty much 50-50, and I made her liquid and whole, and I took the illiquid assets and so forth, and uh, I had it all back in 18 months because I had customers with whom I had equity. She had cash. Cash disappears. <laughs> equity in customers doesn't. Uh, the first thing I heard from a bunch of customers, because there's a principle about this I call sending the invoice to the herd. Um, so you wake up tomorrow morning and you have a dire need for money or you have a big desire for money. If you've done this part of the business right and you have a herd with whom you have great relationship and you have all their data and so forth, then you, so I got, as we announced the divorce, um, uh, I started to get faxes and phone messages. Uh, when are you sending out the invoice? Because <laughs> a bunch of our customers knew, right? Let's see. He's going to take the divorce settlement. He's going to divide it by the number of customers he has. And, and he's going to write a sales letter. And it's over, right? And, and, that's, and that's, that's based on what you own. Mm, that's so cool. <laughs> uh, oh, Colette, get the list. <laughs> Let him have the Lambo. Get the list. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> All right, I've got one more question on my list of questions, and then uh, and then uh, we'll let you. <laughs> I gotta have a conversation with my wife now. <laughs> the last question I had, I know this is this is one I know. There's so many topics we could go deep on. Richer you are, the kinder you must be. <laughs> Good lesson. <laughs> so you can be a jackass when you're broke because. <laughs> 50% of nothing is nothing. <laughs> Burt Reynolds, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Clint Eastwood were all on the Johnny Carson show together one night. And if you don't know who Johnny is, you can Google him. <laughs> and, and Johnny said, and at the time, Schwarzenegger had not yet misbehaved. And Johnny said, um, I don't get it. You guys are all of the same era, you're all box office draws, etc. And Arnold, you're rich, and Bert, you're not. Why not? Bert says, five wives. <laughs> you divide it 50-50. Then you take the 50, you divide it 50-50. You take the 50, and you divide it 50-50. And if you got Loney Anderson, you divide it 80-20 in the wrong direction. And then you divide it 50-50 again, and guess what? You haven't got any money. And Carson, of course, said, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> See, the good news about a new audience is you can use the old stuff. <laughs> it keeps working. I love it. Okay, so my last question for you. Um, 
in a lot of businesses, people are doing things, especially I think online even more so. Like they're moving forward, they're doing a lot of stuff, and they're leaving a ton of money behind, leaving piles of cash. They're not thinking through just different ways to uh, to make sure they're not leaving money behind. I'd love some of your thoughts. I know we could go deep on this for days, but just for people in our audience, like how to make sure they don't do that. Well, to plug a book, <laughs> um, uh, I have a book about this called Almost Alchemy: More from Fewer and Less. And what you can't afford. Um, either because of rising costs of acquisition or because you want maximum power in the marketplace or both, is you can't afford to accidentally or unknowingly leave money behind. Now, if you make a decision knowingly on purpose that, yeah, there's money over there to get, but for the following five good reasons, we're going to ignore it. Fine. But if you don't know it, um, and you're accidentally leaving money behind, then if nothing else befalls you, and there's all sorts of bad things that could happen as a result of that, but if nothing else befalls you, some competitor who will identify those sources of money and not leave them behind, will catch you, kick your butt, and go right past you. Steve Jobs' warning was, <coughs> right now, there's two kids in a garage trying to figure out how to kill Apple. And there'll be a day when two kids will. Right? And that's, that's like healthy paranoia, right? which is an oxymoron, but it's a good strategy. So there's just a ton of money left in like, there's like, so I'll give you an example. Um, the strategy is called appointment no sale. Okay? And so what happens when you do a sales presentation, however it is you do it, and uh, some percentage buy, some number buy, and some percentage or some number don't, right? 90% of businesses are god-awful about this. The only answers they have are bad. If you're ever talking to brick and mortar or practice owners, financial advisors, all you got to do is ask them this question. What happens with those who you make a case presentation to, who you have at your free uh, financial advisor seminar, you know, the one they do for old people. They wave chicken at the door, the old people come in for dinner. And they... <laughs> my, old, my first business was called the Amatrap. It's still being done. Um, uh, they'll only have bad answers for this. Financial advisor has three answers, because if he's really good in front of the room, maybe he books appointments with, he'll tell you two-thirds, it's really one-third, and two-thirds of them escape. Now, one-third of them are worthless, but one-third of them aren't, right? So what do you do with that third, right? He'll say, well, uh, if he's honest, he'll say nothing. Or he'll say, the next time we're doing a seminar, we market to him again. Well, that's stupid. They are, we're already there, right? Or if Bertha has time, we have her call them. Well, Bertha never has time, right? Because Bertha don't want to call them. <laughs> That's their, that's their system. 
I mean, it's beyond, you know, um, I had a client years ago, spent a fortune driving people to webinars, and in a series of three, would close 40%, 45% for a fairly high ticket item, right? And I would say, and I said, what do you do with the rest of them? And he would say, nothing. They just saw my best webinar. If they're not going to buy from that, screw them. I'm going, well, there's going to be a day when you're not going to like that answer. And you're going to want that money, right? Uh, think you grow rich. It's in the ultimate sales letter book, which you referenced. Uh, the letter, um, so everybody that called from the Think and Grow Rich TV infomercial and didn't order, because it was a direct order show, it wasn't a lead generation show. And so you called the phone room, and the telemarketers talked two-thirds of the people out of buying. That's <laughs> what they did. <laughs> well, when you do TV, you surge. So your phone room is full of people, as Ron Grand says, uh, they're, they're in the telemarketing center taking your calls because they were too dumb to work at Popeye's Chicken. <laughs> That's what you got. <laughs> so they would talk two-thirds of the buyers out of buying, right? Uh, so we sent a letter from Fran Targeted, who was the host of the encourage, and we sent an audio cassette, now this is how, this is 87, of the infomercial with some added testimonials on it and the same offer, we converted a significant number, positive. I learned from that, and when I spoke on a big seminar tour, it took me two years, because I was dumb and lazy, but I got it by the third year, we would take everybody that was there who didn't buy my stuff, and we would send them a big long sales letter the next day, which really was a transcription of my entire speech, with a different opening paragraph and a different ending paragraph and an order form, and we never failed to make a profit. Hmm. Not big, not big, but when the customer's back-end value is in the tens of thousands, it's big in future money, not necessarily present bank, but future bank, and we're always managing both banks if we're doing a good job with our businesses. So there's a version of appointment no sale in every business, and most people leave the money behind. And they could be using that money to pay more for leads, to pay more to make a sale, or they could be using that money for wine, women, and song if they insist on it. Uh, or they could be using that money to invest in untouchables outside of their own business. There are all sorts of things you could use the money for. Why leave it lay there? Right? Now you're going like, to want it to pay your taxes. I mean, so that's a good reason to get it. Well, there's all these leaks internally in a business and externally in a business. Typical chiropractic office, they let the front desk staff go to lunch together and put the phones on voicemail. I'm serious. This is like, you know, Afghanistan. Now, half of you giggled when you heard it, right? You go, no. No, you don't, let, you don't want voicemail in the middle of the day when you have three staff people you're paying. No, you take turns going to lunch. So there's always somebody, right, to take. That's the bare minimum in a chiropractic or a dental office. Longtime client of mine, Jay Geyer, has all the stats. If you just, if this is all you change, you get the phones answered 
you get the phones answered by a human, and you get them answered by a human who doesn't mind doing it, in part because you've incentivized them. Well, you can't have Bertha the bookkeeper taking new patient calls because, <laughs> you know, she's pissed off because she was interrupted and on and on and on. So those three things. But if that's all you do, you increase gross revenue by 20%. Hmm. That's how much is being lost just by that. So if you run around a business and you find five of those, you double the business. If you can find five internal and five external, you double double. That's cool. That's so applicable in our businesses too, yeah. <clears throat> First time I hear you talk about that, I started looking at my sales funnel and like from email sequences to funnel everything and start looking at where are all the spots where people are dropping off or things are happening or we're not following up. And literally there's unlimited, there's not just five in most businesses. Well, so, so many start looking at. So specific to funnels, most people build it. We used to call them tunnels, by the way. Tunnels? Yeah, we used to call them tunnels. Because you put somebody on it and you don't let them go over here and you don't let them go over here. You just boom <laughs> through the tunnel, right? <laughs> well, the, the dumbest website on the planet has the, across the top, click here, go wherever the hell you want. Do you sell that way face-to-face? -face? No, no. So why would you sell that way online? It's like stupid. But, <laughs> but um, which is why, you know, web designers... They're like graphic artists, you know. They, um, so I'll tell you a funny story, then I'll finish this thought, and then I guess we'll be done. So I met, I met the National Infomercial Marketing Association convention one year with Guthrie Ranker. And um, it was at a time when normal companies were starting to flirt with the idea of doing infomercials. Now, nobody knew what the hell they... But, they thought they wanted to do this, right? And so Greg brings a guy over to introduce to me, and he's the vice president of marketing for a big brand name kitchen appliance company. I now forget which one. Whirlpool, KitchenAid, one of these. And he says, uh, we, we're doing an infomercial. And we've signed, and I'm not lying, we've signed Francis Ford Coppola to direct. <laughs> so I burst out laughing, <laughs> which annoys Greg, who's a very political, you know, small p, political diplomat kind of person. Um, and I burst out laughing. And of course, the guy takes umbrage at it. And what are you laughing at? I said, well... If you wanted to make Godfather 5, Francis Ford Coppola is the right choice. If you want to sell some dishwashers, I doubt he's ever sold a dishwasher in his fucking life. <laughs> let me tell you who you want, who will cost you a lot less. You want a broken down old door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner sales guy. And he's got one foot bigger than the other one because he shoves it in the door when she opens the door. <laughs> And he's got a three-piece reversible suit that you buy at JCPenney with holes in it from cigarette burns. And he's not perfectly shaven, right? And he's got a little alcohol on his breath. <laughs> That's the guy you want as your director because 
he knows how to sell shit. Right? <laughs> and, and he can hire the guys who run the cameras. He don't need to know how to run the camera. We're all at Joe Sugarman's place in Hawaii one year, and Joe corrals ill-advisedly a Microsoft executive off the beach to come in and talk to everybody. And this guy's, he spent a half an hour putting charts up on the wall. And, you know, he has no idea what he's doing. We're at a direct marketing seminar, and he, he wanted to see them. And I can't remember who was there now, but he was from QVC, and he got really impatient. And he stood up and said, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, I sold like $50 million worth of stuff on QVC last year. I don't know how the picture gets from the TV studio to Martha's house. I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't need to know. Kennedy doesn't know how to cut down a tree and turn it into paper to do direct mail. We don't want to know any of this shit. We're here to talk about how to sell stuff. We can hire people to cut down trees, right? They're readily available. And that's, you know, that's the, the media mistake that happens with web designers, right? Because they're like graphic artists and they're like, you know, they, what do they know? They've never sold anything. And we're selling stuff with media. That's what we're doing, right? And, and that's important. Awesome. This has been so much fun. I have such a huge honor for me. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. <laughs> Let's get down a huge round of applause and stand up. <laughs> You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to Diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.